Do an announcement, and we're going to start with a, a prayer. Uh, for those of you who know of uh, Tom Anderson's passing, um, Lance want to make sure that we announce that his service will be this coming Saturday at 1 p.m. Uh, in Helena. Um, so if you're able to attend that, we would certainly appreciate that. Uh, as you guys know, I am not Carlos. Um, if you took whatever is the opposite on the accent spectrum of whatever that deep southern thing is, they said, well, let's get a Canadian in here. Um, so probably halfway between his accent and my accent is probably the true blue Montanan accent. Um, but we do want to pray. Carlos is, is, is doing well. They're just double-checking everything, making sure everything is, is just fine. you got how many stitches? Twelve? Thirteen. Well, that's a pretty lucky number. Um, and um, but so I mean he's he's doing fine. They're just they're just double checking everything. But we do want to pray uh, for him. So let's just go ahead and take a moment and do that together. Uh, Father, we come on behalf of our brother Carlos. Uh, Father, asking for your hand of healing and your hand of protection to be with him. Uh, we pray that these few tests that they're continuing to to run that everything um, shows up negative. That there's nothing of of any. Um, enduring concern beyond the need for for stitches and pray for his uh, quick healing and for the recovery of his his body. Uh, we thank you for the ways that he's served us and pray, Father, that in the midst of this process it will be a blessing to him as well. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I have a unique experience compared to some people. Not everybody gets to do this. Our, our family used to live in Houston, Texas. And then over the next several years, we um, moved and lived overseas. And after living overseas, we went back and we stayed in the exact same house that we had lived in when we were in Houston. And when we were in Houston, in that house, we felt um, there was nothing that was particularly concerning about the house, nothing particularly um, that, that made us afraid or concerned. But when we lived overseas, we lived in a house that had a uh, six-foot-high gate around the entire perimeter. And we had um, two security dogs that were in that perimeter. And so there was an awful lot of distance and an awful lot of extra protection that we had. So when we went back to the house that we used to live in, to Houston, there was this glass sliding door. How many of you have a glass sliding door at your house? Okay, I'm not going to take any responsibility for what happens with your imagination after this. But I got thinking, you know, a glass sliding door is really not the most secure thing in the world. I mean, somebody can come right up to your house and they can throw a brick or whatever. And I felt really, really unsafe in a house that I used to live in for two and a half years before. And I never once felt unsafe. Now, if I wanted to know if I was any safer or if it was more unsafe from when I lived there before, how do you think I would go about finding out if it was actually less safe? What things would you look at or want to know to find out whether it was less safe? Because I felt less safe, but how could I find out whether it was less safe? The internet. The what? The internet. The internet. And what would I just ask the internet? Am I less safe? Um, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. That one might not turn up right. What do you think? What's that? Throw a brick at the door and see if it's strong enough to hold it? So I could test it. Is, is the door strong enough to keep a, an intruder out? What else would I want to look at to know if it is actually safer or if it's actually more dangerous? A large part of the distance. 
Okay, so I, I might uh, be able to call the um, local police station and say, hey, what's the crime rate in this neighborhood? Has the crime rate gone up? If the crime rate's gone up, then I should feel what? Maybe I should feel a little bit less safe. But if the crime rate's gone down, I should actually feel a little bit more safe. What are some other things I could look at to find out if it is, in fact, actually safer now than before? What's that, sir? A new door. Okay, you check on the, uh, the, the quality, can you upgrade the door? And so what, what that story illustrates is that we have these two, since this is a last minute uh, lesson, we have an entire three slides. The first one was just even a filler, so we actually really just have two slides. But for, for what we're going to do tonight, for this to make sense, and I'm trying to build on some of the things that I, as I was listening to Carlos talk, um, that, that, that were some of the things that, that struck me is we have to be able to differentiate between the objective and the objective, there's, there's better words for it, but we're just going to use that word, is, is what is true in reality, in actuality. So when we're trying to find out if this neighborhood is safer, is it more dangerous, should I have any reason for concern, what I'm looking for is the objective reality of the situation. Okay? But the subjective is how you experience something. Do you think it's possible for me to find out a call when I find out it's actually a safer neighborhood now than it was when I lived in there and I would still feel more nervous, more afraid, more concerned? Do you think that's possible? See, what the objective reality is does not always match up exactly with our subjective experience. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to break this into four categories and as we understand these categories, we're going to look at a couple of passages of Romans and I think it's helpful as we look at Scripture to be able to say, what is the objective reality the Scripture is talking about, regardless of perhaps even my subjective experience of it. So um, we've kind of broken this up into two groups here, or four groups. And on the bottom, let's see, I'm going to look here because I can see, on the bottom is subjective, how I feel about something. And then you have the objective here on the actual reality. So we're going to start with the flourishing category. The flourishing category is things are good... And I feel good. So we're going to illustrate each of these with a test. Have you ever taken a test? And at the end of it, somebody says, well, how did you do? And you say, I, I feel like I aced it. I, I feel like it went really, really well. And then you get your test back, and guess what? You aced it. Okay? That's the flourishing category. Where, where what you subjectively feel, it actually matches up and aligns with objectively what's happening there. Um, so we could go to the uh, category of false hope, where things are bad, but I feel good. Come home and the parents say, so how'd the test go? I say, oh, I, mean, I, I feel really good about it. I, I think I aced it. And then you get the test back and you find out, uh-oh, I just failed that test. Have you ever done that? Felt good about something? Said, no, no. I spent two wonderful years in the fourth grade. I've experienced that several times in my life. Um, wondering why things didn't work out like I had anticipated. So there are these times where, where you, you think everything is like, like I live in a neighborhood and I think it's completely safe and nothing could ever happen and then lo and behold, maybe I was feeling safe when I shouldn't have been feeling safe. The, the top category, the depression, things are good, but I feel bad. You do a test and you're like, oh, uh, uh, I just totally bombed that. I just, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm so dumb. I can't learn anything. And then you get the test back and what's going to be a good? You got an A. 
but, but you're not experiencing any sort of sense of, of I'm learning things or I can, I can handle this or I'm able to do this sort of thing. All, all the things that we're experiencing is this poor subjective experience. Even though things are really, really going well. And then there's this danger category where things are bad and I feel bad about the way things are. Um, so this would be a case where you take a test and you just say, oh, I did not feel like that went really well. And you get the test back and you're like, yep, I did not do very well at all. Anybody ever had that experience? And it's like, I'm not raising my hand. The answer's like, mm-hmm, I'm going to take ownership for it. See, what happens when you get older, you can take ownership for these sort of things, but in the, in the moment... Um, um, older, older than some of the teens, that's all I'm saying. Um, but so there is this, there, there is this recognition of, of the fact that we don't always experience things in the exact same way that aligns with how they actually are. So I want to test you guys to make sure that you're getting it, and let's see if I was smart enough to do this. Okay, so um, guys, ever heard of PTSD? Military people. You're in a war zone, and you have to be ultra aware. You have to be um, very, very aware of your surroundings because you're in a dangerous place. And does, does every single military person, once they leave the battlefield and they come home, does everybody say, okay, now I feel safe? No. Well, part of what PTSD is this, even if I'm in a safe environment, I can't feel safe. When, when, when I hear a, when I hear a, a car backfire, it, it, it makes me feel like I'm not in a safe place. And so there, there's not a match between what I'm experiencing and what is objectively true. I, I can relax. I, I can let go. But I'm not able to do that because of the setting that I'm in. Um, there's this... We talked about dogs this morning. And dogs kind of got the, the positive story and then the cats, you know, so... If you're a dog lover, this, this is an older test they did on some dogs. It's not the nicest test, but I'll you know, show a little bit what happens. Basically, they took some dogs and they, they broke them into three groups, and all the dogs had a harness. And um, they put the dogs in a room where half of the room, as soon as they, there's just like this little, like, um, basically hump that, that divided the two halves of the room. And so the... A third of the dogs, when they would jump over that hump on that one side of the room, they would be in an electric shock. Um, but there was a lever that if those dogs, if they stepped on that lever, I guess it was a button more than a lever. It actually was a lever. If they, if they hit the lever, it would stop the shock. And so they could go over to that side, they would feel the shock, and they were trained to like, they go and they hit the lever and it turns it off. Uh, there was another group of the dogs that they had the harness, but they never got the shock at all. But there was another group that when they went on that side, they got shocks, but there was nothing they could do to turn off the shock. And so guess what those dogs started doing? They just wouldn't go on that side of the room. Because every time they went over there, they would get shocked. And so they did this for, for a good part of the day, and then they turned off the shocks. So, so that none of the dogs would get shocks at all. And what do you think happened to those dogs so earlier when they went on that side of the room? Now they get shocks, or they, the shocks are off. What do you think happens to those dogs? They're not going to go on that side of the room anymore. So, in other words, objectively, there's no danger for them going over there. There's no consequence for them, but they don't feel safe going over there. And so it develops this thing called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is this idea that I can't do anything to get out of the kind of a situation that I'm, that I'm in. 
And so that's this place where I'm, I'm having this, this, this danger or this, this depression where things actually are good. There's no danger to me, but I just don't feel safe. So let's turn to Romans chapter 5. And um, you guys are going to help me unpack a little bit of what's happening here. We'll do it in Romans 5 and then we'll go over Romans chapter 8 in just a minute. Uh, is somebody willing to read for us uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5? Romans 5, 1 through 5. Make sure you read nice and loud so everyone can hear you. Therefore, we've been, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Okay. So what we want to do is we want to find all of the objectively true statements about Christians in those five verses. So, read through if there's something that you think this is something that is objectively true. So, again, objectively means in reality this is true. We're not saying this is something I experience to be true or this is something I feel to be true, but this is something that, that God has through this passage declared to be true. So if you think you see a line or a statement in here that you think is objectively, Paul is saying this is true of Christians, um, go ahead and just share what you find in these five verses, things that are objectively true about Christians. Okay, so we have this, we are justified by faith, we are declared righteous on the basis of faith. Um, is that true only if you feel like it's true? No, it's, it's something that has, has been declared objectively, this is the case. God has made it so. We are justified on the basis of faith. So one who has expressed himself in faith, we'll find in Romans 6 that that happens when we are joined in the waters of baptism to Christ, we die to the old self, we are raised to the new self. That person objectively is justified by faith. What other statements in here are objectively true? Yeah? We have peace with God. Okay? So, um, again, this is not, I, I, I feel like I'm at peace with God, or, or I, I imagine that I might be able to be at peace with God. What's, what's true in reality is, those who are in Christ are at peace with God. Good. What else is objectively true in this passage? Okay, so if you jump down to verse 5, that, uh, because God's love has been poured into our house, hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So, um, do I have the Holy Spirit when I feel like I have the Holy Spirit? Do I, do I have the Holy Spirit when I'm aware of the Holy Spirit? Or do I always have the Holy Spirit because God has said, I have the Holy Spirit. And the reality is, the objective reality is, I have the Holy Spirit of God. What else do you see in here? An objective reality truth that's in these five verses. Tribulation, work Okay. There's this process going on that God is doing something in, in, in our suffering, in our hardship, in our tribulation, that, that God is coming about and He is going to produce something of it. And so that is objectively true. 
that's not something you know. If you believe this process to happen, it will happen. Or if you experience it to be happening, it's happening. It is happening because God says this is the process that happens when we undergo suffering. Any other objective statements you see in these verses? Yeah. The, the, the objective we have is that we are people who have hope. That there's something in the future that we look forward to, that we recognize as God's, um, God's truth and God's reality. Now, I want us to jump down to verse 11. No, we're going to jump ahead, actually. Uh, this is a passage that Carlos mentioned. Chapter 6, verse 11 of Romans. There's been several objective reality statements here um, in Romans 6 about how we are dead to sin. But Romans chapter 6, verse 11 is the first part of uh, Paul's application instruction here. He says, uh, Romans 6, 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the objective reality is that we are dead to sin. The problem is we don't always experience ourselves as being dead to sin. What Paul wants us to do is he wants us to get to the place where we are flourishing, where there is a match between the objective reality of what God says and the truth of what we experience. Can a person be dead to sin and feel like sin still has dominion in their life? Absolutely. You can experience something that's not matching up and aligning with the objective reality. And so what Paul is saying is, is this. Basically, he's saying, I want you to believe what God says is true, that it is true. Sounds kind of weird to say that. God says you're dead to sin. Now what I want you to do is I want you to consider yourself dead to sin. Because there's a lot of times in our lives where we might not consider ourselves dead to sin. Might say, I'm still under sin's dominion. I'm still under sin's rule. To which Paul would say, no, you're not. You might experience that as being the case, but just because you experience something to be so doesn't make it the truth. Doesn't make it the reality of a situation. And so Paul's application, Paul's invitation here is consider yourselves to be what God has already declared you to be. You ever have friends say, you're so pretty, and you think, I'm not pretty. You ever have a friend say, you're so smart, and you think, I'm I'm not smart. What Paul is saying is, you have to consider yourself to be what you actually are. I think there's a lot of Christians who don't consider themselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul wants is to bring us to this place of flourishing where we agree with what God has said about us. There are a lot of times based on the things we say we disagree with what God has said about us. So God will say, you're a new creation. And you'll say, no, I'm still that old, useless, dead-to-self person. What we, what we recognize when we say all of those things is we're actually declaring something about ourselves that is the opposite of what God declares about us. Now, been the body classes very long. This probably shouldn't be a very hard question. What do you think is more likely to be true? What God declares about you or what you feel about yourself? If you 
you're a betting person, what are you going to bet on? Your present feeling at this time or what God says to be true? I hope I would bet on what God says to be true. And so Paul is inviting them in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, you must consider or reckon or regard yourselves as dead to sin. They are already dead to sin. And they just need to start seeing themselves in that way and alive to God. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And if someone would read, let's see here. Yeah, let's go ahead and go all the way through. Let's just do verses 1 through 4. Anybody willing to read Romans 8, 1 through 4? And David's got a microphone. He can get you here. It comes there. There, therefore now there is therefore now no condemnation to them which is which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what law could he not do in that which, in that it was weak through flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin? Condemn sin in, in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Take the same question that we asked last time. What are some of the statements here in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, that are objectively true? These are things that, that God declares to be true of those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Back in Romans chapter 5, I think it's verse 16 and verse 18, Paul talks about how with Adam brought in sin, and that sin brought condemnation to all. So there is this punishment that comes to people, and Paul says, objectively, because of the work of Christ, there is now no condemnation. There is no punishment, there is no retribution that happens as a result of sin. That is objectively true. And it is not true simply because you think it's true. It's, it's true because God has declared it to be true. What other objective statements that are true in this passage, verses 1 through 4? So we have been set free from the law of sin and death. That's objectively true. It's true in reality, and it's true because God declares it to be true. What else? Objective statements that are true in reality in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Okay. Um, So you see the just requirement of the law... um, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God has, what God has done, God has done in order that, for the reality that God will make it possible for the just requirements of the law to be fulfilled where? In us. It's actually, it's, it's 
as you read it, you expected to say something different. So that the just requirement law might be fulfilled in him is what you expected to say. But it doesn't say that it might be fulfilled in him. Where is the just requirements of the law going to be fulfilled? In us. We are now going to be able to do what was impossible to do. Um, and what was impossible to do, um, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law not do? The law could not lead us into a life where we fulfilled the just requirements of the law. Objectively, the reality is that the law lacked the power that was necessary to produce a kind of life that honored God. But through God's Spirit, He can now do what the law wasn't able to do, and that is objectively true. So there is this recognition in the Scripture that, that Paul will go through these phases of saying, here's some things that are true. They're true. And some people might say, yeah, but I don't know, it's true. it doesn't feel like it's true. It doesn't, I don't always experience it to be true. So Paul's going to do something similar to what he did in, in chapter 5, then in chapter 6. If we go down to Romans 8, I know, just slid over there, okay. Um, and come down to verse 16, Romans 8, verse 16. It says, It is that very Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. The objective reality of the statement is, we are children of God. But Paul recognizes that sometimes we don't always feel like children of God. And so Paul says what his spirit will do, and the language here you have to pay careful attention so you don't get too confused, God's Holy Spirit will bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, God's going to use his spirit to convince you, your personal spirit, your, 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 your life essence, your life essence needs to be convinced that you are children of God. But God's already said we're children of God. You ever notice how many times God repeats things in the Bible? You ever read the statement, God is love? This is me, right? I said it once, there was a, uh, a guy I knew in, in Houston, and his wife said, you never tell me. You never tell me that you love me. And he said, on our wedding day, I told you I love you. And if it ever changes, I'll let you know. Doesn't it sometimes you need to be affirmed? Someone says they love you, and things happen in life, and you wonder, do you love me? And you say, I love you. I love you. Your very spirit needs to have a witness by God's spirit that certain things are true. God loves you, and a couple days later you begin to wonder, what really does he? Could he? Would he? Should he? God says, you're a child of God, and a few days later you wonder, am I really a child of God? Am I really the beloved of God? And so God's Spirit makes it His job to witness to our spirit that what God objectively says is true is true. In other words, God wants us to experience subjectively the truth that's already there. So let's look at, we'll back up here a little bit to get this picture of what Paul's saying here in Romans chapter 8. Verse uh, 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So if you're led by the Spirit of God, you are a child of God. That's objectively true. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. So as Christians, we've received the spirit of adoption. And one thing that's important to know about adoption is for, like, when you think of adoption, what, what do you think of? Somebody tell me what, what comes to mind when you think of, an, of adoption. Kitties. Kitties? 
Your children, right? This baby, a mother's taking care of this baby, and someone adopts that baby. Now, in the first century, that's not what adoption was, predominantly. Predominantly, uh, adoption was a succession plan. If this wasn't a last-minute thing, which it is, um, somebody can Google which of the Roman emperors were adopted, and there's four of them who were adopted. And they're adopted because the emperor looks at his own sons and he says, these guys are a bunch of losers. I'm not leaving them in charge. And they adopt someone so that they can leave the kingdom, the emperorship, to them. So adoption is really an interview process. But God's adoption of us is much more like we understand adoption. When you adopt a baby, do you think you have an idea like what that baby's IQ is and how that baby's going to do in school and how well they're going to listen and obey? No, that baby is just that, a baby. And, and so God adopts us. God loves us in, in all the ways that we are like a baby, helpless and needing. We've received the spirit of adoption. So when we cry, Abba, Father, that very spirit is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think as Christians we need to do a better job being willing to speak the objective reality that God speaks about us. I'm, I'm, I'm a son of God. We're a daughter of God. We have peace with God. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. No longer sin has reign and dominion over us. I think a lot of times when we talk, we talk about our subjective reality, how I, how I feel. You know. I, I, feel like, I feel like maybe, maybe God doesn't always listen to me. I feel like maybe I don't have peace with God. And again, if we think back to that opening story about when we lived in Houston, what do you think is more important? Is it more important whether you feel safe? Someone comes to buy the house and say, I don't know if you should live here because I don't really feel like it's a very safe house. If somebody told you that, would you not buy the house based on their feeling that does it feel like a very safe house? No, you'd say, I want to go and find out. Is this a safe neighborhood? I want to look at the stats. I want to know what objectively is true. And as Christians, I think that's what we ought to do. We ought to begin to believe the things that God says about us. God says that we are sons and daughters of His. God says we have been set free from sin and death. And so, to boil down this lesson to its simplest form, is this. All you need to do is believe that what God says is true about you is actually true. And when you read your Bibles, if you begin to say, what are the things that God is objectively saying about me? And you begin to then say those things about yourself, you're going to recognize that God has a new life in store for us. To be set free from an old way of living and old patterns of life. May we objectively affirm what God says about us. Let's pray. Father, we ask first for forgiveness. Forgiveness for the times when all that has been accomplished on the cross, our very own spirit rebels against, or our very own spirit says, 
Yeah, but maybe that's not true of me. Maybe, maybe you don't love me. Maybe, maybe you don't accept me. Maybe, maybe you've not brought peace. So, Father, I pray that you give us, first of all, the eyes to see, and then secondly, the courage to just simply affirm the truth, the objective reality that you give us in Scripture. Oh, Father, you have set us free. You've given us new life and new hope, and may we live into the very life and hope that you give us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I deeply apologize that I went short tonight. I hope you find it in your hearts to forgive me.